see a picture up there, baseball and a bat. It's the back to the biblical basics, the fundamentals of the faith. Um, every year in baseball, they go to spring training and they do the basics over and over again. Whether or not you've signed a contract for $5 million for five years... Or you're just coming out of the minors. Everybody does the same thing. And so it is with the church. Uh, we need to go back to the basics, the fundamentals of the faith. And so we're in the book of Titus. Three chapters, 46 verses worth committing to memory. And it's a letter to help a pastor and a congregation carry out God's word to a world that's in need of his gospel. And the image we're using this uh, series is home plate. Uh, to succeed in baseball, you always have to be crossing home plate. And to succeed as a community of believers, we must do the same. And home plate for us is God's gospel lived together in community and carried out to the world. And so you see up top the gospel, three different places in every chapter. Once it's at the beginning, once it's at the end, and once it's right in the middle. Because the gospel is to be before us, at the end of us, and permeate everything we do. And so it is on top. It is what drives leadership and drives us into the world. It's what drives discipleship and drives our mission. Two weeks ago, we looked at taking God at his word and we looked at the gospel. We saw God's people. Uh, We saw God himself. We saw God's word that it was inerrant. There are no errors in it. It is sufficient. You don't need anything else. You don't need your Bible and uh, the best psychology book or the best um, business book. You need the scripture to succeed in life. It is clear Yes, there are difficult portions, but it is clear. My eight-year-old son can read it. I can read it. You can read it. It is clear. There are difficult parts, but it is clear. It is authoritative. It is what this church is under. We are under the headship of Jesus Christ and God, and they reveal themselves in the Word, and it is necessary. It's not an option for us. It's not maybe this week we'll preach from the Bible. Maybe this week I'll give you 32 ways to love your wife. Unless it's in the Song of Solomon and there just happen to be 32 commands. I don't know. But it's necessary. And last week we kind of got out of order and that was on purpose to specifically talk about taking God at his word, but then taking it to the world, specifically focused on motherhood, that it is a God-honoring privilege. To be a mother is a good thing. It is a great thing. It is a necessary thing. It is a divine thing. And it has God-given priorities. To be a mother, it's not just how you figure you should do it. It is laid out for us in Scripture. And finally, it serves a God-glorifying purpose that the Word of God, that the gospel might not be blasphemed, but that the world would see through young mothers and old mothers working together for the next generation to carry out God's purposes on earth. And so today we get right back into the flow. We're going to look at Titus 1, 5 through 9. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to have Justin Brandt come and read the scriptures. The first week we did the ESV. Last week we did the New American. Today we do the ever popular New International Version. It's on You May Go. Book of Titus. Paul, the servant of God, and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season, he brought his words to life through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, 
my true Son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, with self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has, as it has been taught, as that he encouraged others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose him. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are running whole households by teaching, ruining whole households by teaching things that ought not to teach, and that for the sake of the dishonesty, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths, or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupt. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, but teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about it. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and to not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These men, these men are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, 
deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We live to malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a decisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good order that they may provide for daily necessities and do live and do not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all.
which means we need better pastors. We need pastors who are not boys, but are men. Pastors who are not trying to prolong their adolescence, but pastors who are trying to be the men that God has called them to be. They are qualified men in their character. They are called men to serve God's church. They are determined men. They are dependent men. They are tough men. They're able to take a punch. They're able to handle circumstances. They're tender men. They're able to love their wives and love their kids and to teach their church to love their community. Tragically, the last time the gospel was preached from this pulpit to this church was 1957. Three to 4,000 churches this year will close just like this church. Why? Because the story and the glory of the church becomes bigger than the story and glory of God. See, the men and women who planted this church, they actually believe this stuff. They actually believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, that, that he died a brutal death, and that he rose again, triumphing over sin and death. They believed it, and because they believed it happened, they believe it had implications on their life. That their sin could be forgiven, that they could have a new identity, and that they can be sent on mission with this God who is on mission. But the reality is most Christians are not on mission. A recent poll said that 60% of all Christians felt no obligation whatsoever to share their faith. Now the temptation for us pastors is to beat the sheep with a stat like that in our sermons. But here's the reality, guys. They're simply imitating and following our example. We need a glimpse of the God who is on mission. My friend Dave was meeting with a consultant who asked him this question. Dave, why do I have a bigger dream for your church and your city than you do? And I don't know about you, but I don't want anyone to have a bigger dream for my church and my city than me. And I don't want to build a museum. I want to be a part of a movement. Men, this is a call to us. Last week we talked to the mothers, and this week and four weeks from today, um, it's a two-part series called A Few Good Men, because that's what the church needs. That's not just what this church needs, it's what every church in this valley needs, it's what every church across the nation needs, is a few good men. And I want to be that kind of church. And I want to share with you a dream, but I'm going to make you wait till the end. I want to show you a quote here from D.L. Moody that says this, The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. I will try my utmost to be that man. Gentlemen, is this true of us? Are we fully and wholly consecrated to Jesus Christ? Is that true for you and me? There are only three kinds of men here today. There are those who do not know and have never heard of anything like this. Today you will be taught. There are those who do know and you just need the fan flamed. You need to light the fire again. Today it will be stoked. And there are those of you who know and don't care. And today you will be challenged. Today and in four weeks from today, I'm presenting a biblical view of manhood. Call it uh, a few good men. This is part one. And today we're going to look at the, 
the uh, display the duties and the doctrine of God's leaders of the church. So if you want, you can turn to Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9. It will be up on the uh, screen. And here's the preview of today's uh, sermon. You will see that leadership by qualified men is purposeful, it is personal, it is interpersonal, and it is theological. Uh, Number one, we'll get right to work. Leadership is purposeful. God leads his church through qualified men, period. God leads his church through qualified men. We've been talking about how taking God at his word and taking God's word to the world. How do we do that? Where do we start? Where does Paul start? He starts at the beginning in five through nine with the qualifications for elders. Earlier, Paul had written in Timothy, it is, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Gentlemen, it is a noble thing to want to lead in the church. I would go so far as to say, and it's not because I'm a pastor. I used not to be a pastor. If I am ever not a pastor, I still want to be a part of leading the church. This is where it's at. And in the past, the church has made errors on routine ground balls in leadership. Leaders, men who have gotten away from the fundamentals and moved on to more important issues. And so I praise the Lord for men who have ministered in the same place for 25 plus years. I praise God for men like John MacArthur in the middle of Los Angeles who has stayed the course, never wavering on every wind of doctrine and every um, new thing that came down. He's done one thing and he did it and he's still doing it for 42 years. He went verse by verse from Matthew to Revelation all the way through the entire New Testament. And he's now has a congregation of thousands of people who will come and meet and they will go out and they're transforming by God's grace and for God's glory through the preached word and the mission of the saints. He's trans, he's been used by God to um, transform the LA area. I think men like John Piper, who for over 30 years in Minneapolis, one of the most liberal cities uh, in the country has stood firm and he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to teach the Bible. We're going to go on mission. I thank God for Alistair Begg in Cleveland, Ohio. He's a Scotsman all the way in Cleveland, Ohio. And he stood the test of time year after year. In my opinion, going on record, I think he's probably the best preacher in the United States today. Great balance of exposition, apologetics, uh, biblical counseling, you name it. That gentleman has taught me more about preaching uh, than anyone else. And I thank God for my pastor, Tom Nelson, who was a model of a man to grow up under. His character was solid. His discipline was unheard of. I didn't always agree with his decisions. He and I didn't always see eye to eye on things, but he was the leader and I submitted to his authority. And I owe much of who I am today to that man. And those of you who've listened to his Uh, sermons on the Song of Solomon, you know who he is. He can take this Bible and he can preach it like no other and he can make you feel like you're right there. And so today we're going to look at five verses. And men, this is a call. This is a high call to every single man in this room, every single person who may be listening. This is a high call to manhood because Paul said it is a noble thing to desire this. 
Every single man in here should desire this. Every single man in here could, uh, with a few exceptions, could become leaders in a church. And and it is my goal to have a, a dream to have a church full of, if not elders by appointment, if not elders in official title, men who could be elders at any time. And so this is where I get this. It begins in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus. This is why I, Paul, left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You're going to notice four things in this one verse. You're going to notice, one, the absence of Paul. Paul had moved on. Paul had gone to other places, but he had left Titus to do the work of the ministry. You're also going to notice the awareness. Paul and Titus, you'll see more about that next week, but they were both aware of their culture. Crete was the largest island of the Greek Isles. It's the second largest in the Mediterranean. Epimenides came from this island. Zeus apparently assigned him as the prophet after a long 50-year nap. It was a beautiful place to live. Some say it was popular, the most popular place during the Roman Empire. It was harbored by pirates, thieves, and people went there just to relax and get away from it all. It was the Cancun of the ancient Near East. It was here Paul traveled with Titus, trained him up, left him to put in order what remains. And so that is the third thing. There's an absence, there's an an awareness of culture, and there's this administration. There's this disorder that needs to be straightened out, and that is what leaders do. Leaders, men, we bring clarity to the church. And then we appoint leaders. Titus must have been a regional leader because it says, I want you to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And notice it says elders. It doesn't say, I want you to appoint an elder in a church. It is a plurality of elders. There are multiple churches, even in this little island. And so each and every one of them is called to have a multiple plurality of elders. Each church needs plurality of elders. And then he goes on and he gives their qualifications. And so number one, God leads his church through qualified men. And number two, God leads his church through qualified men who are not perfect, but who are progressing. And so we're going to look at the duty of reverent men. And you're going to see first and foremost in chapter six or in verse six, uh, the personal life of a pastor, elder leader, by the way, Side note, not on my notes, just came to mind. A pastor is an elder and an elder is a pastor. They're interchangeable in the New Testament. It's not like there's just the pastor and elders. That's not how we should look at it. All pastors are elders and all elders are pastors. It's interchangeable. Read Acts 20, read uh, Ephesians. It's all in there. The pastors are elders. Elders are pastors. And namely, you'll see it repeated twice, both in 6 and 7. They are to be in their character above reproach. Notice it doesn't say they are to be perfect. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an odd thing when I, when I visit with someone and, say, and I, I had sinned against them and they said, this shouldn't happen. I'm not Jesus. Chris is not Jesus. Jim is not Jesus. There is only one Jesus. And so if if Jesus sins against you and you sit with him, you should say that shouldn't happen. And so I'm here to show you, um, this is going to be largely uh, personal because it's about pastors and leaders. And so I can't speak for Chris. I can't speak for Jim. I'll speak for myself. 
I'll show you successes, failures, and you're just going to get, I'm an open book today. And so number one, we are to be above reproach. That is, in some translations, we are to be blameless. It's repeated again in in verse 7. It is kind of the summary call and everything else fits under this. And so in my personal life, in Chris's personal life, in Jim's personal life, gentlemen, in every man's personal life, again, if not elder in position, definitely elder ready. We are to be the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so first and foremost, we are to have a personal life that is above reproach. We are to be uh, good managers of the home. We are to have the husband of one wife. There is lots of discussion on what does this mean? I could bore you with the details of, does this mean a man who has only been married once and if his wife dies, can he ever get married again? Or if he's been divorced, we can go on to that in another day. It is the husband of one wife. Is this the man who in that time, we're just going to relate it to polygamy and he's got, what does he do with all his other wives? No, the idea behind this when Paul was writing to Titus is this is a man who has one wife. He is unsullied in his reputation in the area of sex and marriage. I do not have other wives. The day I have another wife is the day I voluntarily, or you wrap me up and take me out. I have one wife. She sits right there every week. And the bigger call there is that I am to be wholly devoted to that one wife. Darren Patrick made a call about young men and their struggle with porn. Gentlemen, that is something we need to be on top of with our young men early. Praise the Lord. I praise the Lord by his grace because I've never really been into computers. That has not been an issue for me. By God's grace and for his glory because I've just never been a techie. So he's, he's, he's spared me from that. But I've, I have led a singles ministry for seven years and I've walked with men for 15. And this seems to be one of the biggest key factors in life is you cannot be a good husband of one wife if you are challenged daily with your heart split, whether that's with a physical woman, a woman on the internet, or through a magazine. We are to be husbands of one wife. And then we're to be good managers of the home. The ESV said children who are believers. And that you rightly could say that, but I think if you look at these other texts, and if you look at a cross-reference in 1 Timothy 3, where he's talking again on this issue, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I think a better translation than believers is children who are faithful. Why do I say that? Because the Greek word pastuo there means faithful. It could mean believing or faithful. And the reason I land on faithful is not because I'm trying to keep my job as an elder. I could go do many other things. I could teach classes on exercise. So I'm not here jockeying for my position as an elder. The reason I say I think it means faithful is because of this. Every description of the qualification of elders in here is attainable by a man. I cannot save my children. And so if you look at these verses, it should be the next slide. There's three of them. If anyone be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, King James. We have to go back to King James. 
An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with children who cannot be charged with dissipation or rebellion. The net Bible translation and then the latest Holman Christian Standard, one who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. And I told my wife as our kids were coming in here wildly this morning, I said, God is humbling me even before I get up to preach. Because I don't want them to be open to that charge. Now, that is not how they live normally, but God was saying, see, you have boys and they can be wild and rebellious. And so, again, not perfect, but progressing. We are to have children who are not open to these charges. The day that happens, my son's wild. He's not submissive. Uh, The day he's insubordinate, I step down. Period. End of story. No questions asked. And one of my heroes of the faith had a son who was an unbeliever. Yet he was always in subordination to his father. He went to, he said, daddy, I just don't understand the gospel. And today, by God's grace and for God's glory, that pastor's young man has come to know the Lord and he has got a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. And so a good leader must be a sober follower guided by the principles of scripture. A leader in his influence, God leads to qualified progressing men who are proven publicly. You see that in verse seven. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There's that word again. There's the summary statement. Is my life above reproach? Not perfect, but is it above reproach? And I'm an overseer. Chris is an overseer. Jim, who's not here today, we're overseers. That is a privilege. And we're God's stewards. That is a responsibility. That God has entrusted us. God has entrusted us. This is the heaviness. Right before I was getting up to preach this, I said, Lord, this is heavy. God has entrusted us. In Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, I'm not, gonna, I'm not talking about that. You Praise the Lord, you do a wonderful job of that. Here's the reason why this is heavy. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I am going to stand before the Lord. Chris is going to stand before the Lord. Jim is going to stand before the Lord. And we want to raise up many of you who will be elders. We will stand before the Lord and we will give an account for souls. That is the heaviness of this position. That means when hard calls need to be made, I want to be able to say, I gave what I thought was the best rendition, or not rendition, interpretation of your scripture to this person because I cared for their soul. They may not like me, but they're cared for. It's a privileged responsibility. And not only must we have those virtues in our personal life, but we are to avoid these vices. Number one, he must not be arrogant. Oh, how many people get, get confused. Arrogance with confidence. If a man says something with uh, sternness in his voice and tone, he is all of a sudden arrogant. Please don't get that confused. There is something about when I preach God's word, I'm going to preach it with confidence by God's grace and for his glory and through the training and through the gifts that he's given me. I can rightly understand what it says. And so I want you to know what God has to say. I don't think it's confusing. I don't think it's a mystery. 
I think we should know it, and I think we should present it with confidence. Arrogance is self-willed. Arrogance has a root of pride. Arrogance is if I'm up here every week talking to you about how great of a pastor I am. I don't think I've ever done that. I think the only thing I've ever said is how much I screw up (laughs) as your pastor. Not quick-tempered. Oh, baby. I had some men in a men's study this Tuesday. They got to hear this firsthand. The Lord is making my fuse longer. And some of you are saying, really? You should have seen it before five years ago. Uh, It is progressively getting longer. I was confessing my sin to them. And one of them said, and brother, we've seen you grow in this. Some of you may not agree, but that person did. And many others have said that. And I say, praise the Lord. We shouldn't be quick tempered. We should have a long fuse. It should be lit like at the end of the hallway. And we just sit there. "Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we keep walking and the fuse just keeps growing. We shouldn't be drunkards, not addicted to wine, not doling our minds with drink. And so there's a trust in God. There's a temperament of grace. There's a temperance. We shouldn't be violent. And I read through this and I read commentaries. I guess this was an issue at the time. I've heard of one pastor throwing a book at somebody in their study, but man... That, uh, we shouldn't be violent. You shouldn't want to go to fisticuffs over disagreements. Reign in your emotions. And we shouldn't be greedy for gain. There is an amb- ambition is good when you're ambitious for the gospel. Make it, your, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and so you can reach out to the lost. But ambition for greed, for the love of money. It is like that movie, Show Me the Money. Judd, do you want to come pastor of the church? Well, show me the money. I mean, what are we, what are we looking at? What, what kind of cars do, we, do I get? Is there a parsonage that comes with this? I remember sitting when I was interviewing. We just happened to be in Beaver Creek at the Starbucks. It was beautiful. And I just wanted to see if they had a sense of humor. I said, yeah, guys, in, in all my life, I've just wanted to live in something like that. And I said, I am absolutely just kidding. And they laughed. They had a sense of humor. And so those are the vices you want to avoid. You don't want to be prideful. You don't want to be angry. You don't want to be a drunk. You don't want to be violent. You don't want to be greedy. You want to trust the Lord. My pastor, Tom Nelson, said, when it comes to money, it's the last thing you talk about and you never raise your voice. And then there are virtues. Verse 8, you're not to do these things, but you're to be hospitable. You're welcome at my house anytime. You know that. I've invited all of you and I'll invite you again. Come on. Not all of you today, but if you want to come here, it's open. Seriously. It's not a, oh, he's so busy. I don't know. I could have you, some of you raise your hands. If you want to get a hold of us, we're there for you and you can come anytime. We, our doors are open anytime. Anytime. You want to come today? You want to come today? You want to have lunch? You can have lunch with us. It's good. No big deal. I'll let you know. Somebody takes us up on that, right? We're to be hospital. You have to open house anytime, day or night. You're to be a lover of good. Really wrestled with that one. I mean, I'm a lover of soccer. Soccer's good. It's the most popular sport in the world. I'm a lover of the Cowboys. Cowboys aren't good, but it's, you know, it's ingrained in me. 
That's not what it means. It means, do I treasure up right things in my heart? Am I more consumed with spreading the gospel or am I more of an evangelist for Brian Regan? One time in my life, I said, oh my, all I'm talking about is Brian Regan. He's a great comedian, but he doesn't need the press. Like Jesus needs to, do I treasure up the things in my heart that are good or am I filling them with other things? Things that are not as great as Jesus. Am I self-controlled and sensible and thoughtful? This is what we're working on in the Rumley household. From 10, 8, and 6, we're all working on self-control. Not necessarily physical, well, some physical, but emotional self-control. That we are to be sensible and thoughtful, controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit. We're to be upright. This is the way we are towards others. Upright. You, can know, you want to know anything about my life? You can ask me. You can ask my wife. That's the way it ought to be. Christianity is not this private thing where you can only know so much about me. You want to ask anything. Really, really, I'm coming. See, notice my fuse is getting longer. I'm, I'm learning to be really, really patient with this idea of this privatized Christianity. So we must be upright. We must be holy. So upright towards others and holy, devout towards God. That I constantly say and I constantly question my soul, am I following Jesus as much as I could? Am I growing in my faith? I do not want to be the same one year from now, May 18th, 2015. If I'm the same, I'm not progressing in holiness. And finally, we are to be disciplined. It is a fruit of the Spirit that governs all others. Men, we are to be disciplined. If you're here today and you're a man, I want to give you, this this is kind of a pre-Father's Day gift for you. I, I want to show you how to get a grip on manhood, how to be disciplined in manhood. A few things I like to talk about more than encouraging men to be men. And so if you want to get a grip on manhood, we have a slide here. If you take your palm, I did it. I did it with a visual so you can take it with you. Men, how many men are here today? Raise your hands. See that hand you got? This is your visual. Number one, your palm is spiritual because it touches everything else on that hand. Your palm touches everything. That is your spiritual. You must be holy and devout before God. It is, it is not, spiritual is not one part of your life. Like today I'm going to work on my financial life and then tomorrow I'll work on my spiritual. Everything you do is spiritual. Everything. You mean to tell me my mind is uh, spiritual? Yes, your mind is touched to the palm. It's your intellectual life. Uh, notice I said intellectual on the thumb because the thumb can touch all other things. The mind informs everything else. And so we must be devout and holy before the Lord and we must be thinkers. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 7, Think over what I say, for I'll give you understanding in everything. Men, we need to become another generation of thinkers. We need to think through what? Number right here, our physical life. It's the index finger. It's the most skilled of your hand. We need to think through our physical life. Somehow we get to the Christian church and we go, I don't want to be uh, all proud of my body in the six pack and I can bench 350, so I'm just going to eat what I want. No, you need to think through your physical life because we want you in this church for years to come. We want you to outlast your wives. And so you need to be mindful. You don't need to be consumed with it, but you need to think about it. Your physical life. 
and it touches your, your financial life. The, the middle finger, it's the biggest finger, and that's a big issue in most men's life is the finances. You need to get your finances in order. I have a very simple formula for it. I took, um, went to school for four years. I got my bachelor's degree in accounting and finance, and this is, a, this is not complicated. Your revenues must be greater than your expenses. It's, it's that easy. Well, what about investing in the market? I, I'm not talking about investing in the market. I'm not an expert in that. Well, what about this? Your revenues must exceed your expenses. Young men, get that. If you're in middle school, high school, college, get that. Your revenues must exceed your expenses. I say this, I share with you my struggles and being quick-tempered sometimes. I'll share with you a success. I think it was because my father, when he died, he left my mother in lots of debt. And my mother worked her tail to the bone and paid it off. And it just just instilled in me. And by God's grace and for his glory, uh, we are debt-free. So if you need money, we'll give you money. Because I'm not worried about having to pay anything off. Praise be to God all to God. But I'm sharing that with you because my revenues exceed my expenses. It's that easy. You don't need to think, well, what about, it's that easy. You have a mortgage, you have these things, let's lay it out on a sheet of paper. And here's what I'm going to do. If you come to me, I really, I've helped more single guys with this than anything else. They come to me and we put it there and I say, your revenues don't exceed your expenses. (laughs) And then we work through that. I had a guy, I think I've shared this before. I share it with you now just because it's one of the greatest illustrations to ever share on this. His guy was a chef, a chef. He's a chef. He knows how to cook. And he was spending more money per month eating out than I spent on supporting a family at that time of four. And I sat with him at Starbucks and I said, this is not hard. I feed my family for this much and you're spending this much. I feed my family for $500 a month and you're spending 30 bucks a day, $600 a month on eating out. Uh Uh-huh. Well, we can easily change that, bro. And you can have steak once a week. I mean, wow. His revenues did not exceed his, it's not that difficult, but I'm in debt. Let's pay it off. But I, mm-hmm, cable, gone. Internet, gone. But I've got to be, no, you don't. You do not. I don't either. No, it's that easy. Social, relational, it's the ring finger. We got to be able to relate to each other. And it's not this stoic uh, relationship. It is, we go back and forth and we laugh and we cry. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We have firm com- conversations with one another. And then we, then we, we agree that we both love each other on the same team. And we, this is how we do it. And it's not going to look the same for everybody every day, we, but we've got to relate to one another. And men, we've got to relate to women differently. This is what I'm teaching Luke, Luke. I love Luke, but Luke, This is not how we relate with your sister. She's a girl. It is amazing. This is funny. We did this the other night. I'm putting the boys down. Ashley's putting Lauren down. And it's it's not the same. 
And so over here, we've got two facing each other and then just, hi, how are you? And how was your day? And here we're throwing them against the wall and they're running and a punch. And it's, that's how we do it, Luke. But when you go over here, you sit and you look at them and you, hi, that's just how it is. (laughs) It's true. But, but here's the thing that that doesn't change. It just matures. And when we grow up, we just, we, God designed us differently and that's okay. And we got to relate to each other differently. My wife tells me, I'm not your brother. You're right. He was in town last week. I'm not hit. That's right. You guys are different. We can't, you know, it's, that's different. Speaking of my brother, and I missed this illustration. I'll just go back for, uh, that whole idea of being, being, you know, not being quick tempered. I can play golf with any of you here and play terrible and my fuse is like reaches all the way to Denver. Yet when my brother's here on my home course with borrowed clubs and he beats me, I just really grip that golf club differently. It's not right. And emotionally, it's the pinky finger, gentlemen. So all of life is spiritual, intellectual touches, your physical, financial, social, and emotionally. We must emotionally be mature. A leader, God leads through, leads his church through qualified men. God leads his church through qualified men who are progressing, progressing and proven. That is those virtues and those vices. You can see, you can attest to them. You can tell if I'm lying. And then finally, verse nine, God's leader must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Leaders are learners, period. The trustworthy word is taught. The day you stop learning as a leader is the day your leadership is done. And notice what it says there. He must hold firm. That means we have to have convictions. Men who do not have convictions have two things. They have a low view of scripture and they have a low view of sin. Yeah, when I say high view of scripture, I mean it is inerrant, uh, it is sufficient, it is clear, it is authoritative, and it is necessary for everything. A low view of scripture says, I don't know, I don't know on this one. Now, not every doctrine's a doozy. We're going to have to take our time through predestination but you can get to a good, reasonable position, a biblical one. It's in there. But justification by faith, it's not up for debate. Uh, Where the church lands on abortion, divorce, homosexuality, shouldn't be confusing. You got to hold firm to it. This is what we believe. Why do you believe this? Because this is what this says. And there are certain things that we are open-handed with. Okay, we're going to go that direction. I don't agree with it, but we'll go. That's cool. It's not here. And what happens is you have no conviction and you think you have no view of a low view of scripture and a low view of sin leads to a loose grip and it leads to a lack of competency on, on situations and they get weird. My friend in Texas, God love him. He, he's going through a situation with some leadership in his church because he counseled a woman who, who wants to get a divorce from her husband because of a guy she met on Facebook. His counselor is, let's 
to the husband, really. He counseled the husband. You need to get her off Facebook. And the other men came and said, you can't tell her to do that. Or him to do that. Why not? It's because you have a low view of scripture. You have a low view of sin. Well, fa- Facebook's what caused the problem. Well, really, the root of it's her heart. But we're, it, it's like to the drunk, you get him out of the bar. That's what I did. The Lord convicted me one day. You can't drink like you drink. You're a drunk. Ah, bright idea. Don't go to the bar. And then I dealt with it. I went to an AA meeting and they were praying to tires. And I'm like, wait a second, you can't pray to a tire? I mean, I guess you can. But I walked away from that and I said, you know what, Lord, you're going to have to take this from me because I can't go back to this meeting. Now, I'm not saying all AA meetings are like that. This one was, and it was weird. And I said, I can't do that. God help me. You're going to have to take this from me. And he delivered us. Amen. He can do that. And so we can't have this low view of scripture, this low view of sin. You loosen your grip and you don't, you come to situations confused. And it leads to a lack of confrontation. But we must hold to, we must give instruction in sound doctrine, and we must rebuke. There is a time and place for us to give rebukes. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Proverbs, I I wish I knew it off the top of my head, Proverbs. I think it's Proverbs 3. It just talks about a rebuke. It says, he who loves his brother gives a rebuke. Love and rebuke in the same sentence? Yeah, it's in there. You can find it later. Well, well, Judge, you're saying you have to have a conviction. What, What do we need to be convicted on? What do we need to hold to? Well, four weeks from now, when we talk about a vision of manhood, I'll give you some essentials. But today, let me just give you the non, nine non-negotiables of the faith. And number one, you, you have to, to be a leader, you have to hold to the Bible's authority. You have to. No authority, no leadership. Because you, leaders, we are men with, under and with authority, namely under God's authority. It's the only authority without error on earth. Number two, you've got to hold to God's sovereignty. God isn't uh, a human being out there who's learning just like us and he's making progress and he needs us. He's absolutely sovereign. He's in control of the world. That's one of those we, I could easily explain it to you from every book of the Bible, but he, he's actually worked it out from beginning to end. Alpha to omega, he, he knows. He says in Isaiah, I know everything and I cause everything and everything's going to be all right for those who love me. You've got to believe that. If you don't, what, what do you say? What do you say? Family in, in need of some counsel. Don't know where God was on this one. You say, I don't know exactly how he's going to get you through this, but I know one thing's for sure. He's sovereign. And you got to believe in Jesus Christ, both his humanity and deity, and you can't, you can't fall too, you've got to hold them. Well, is he 100% God or 100% man? Mm-hmm. How do you hold that? I don't know. That's just what the Bible says, and I believe it to be true because God had to die for my sins because nobody else could satisfy God but God. And... and a man had to die for my sins because nobody else should die for a man's sins but man. And that's how you hold those together. 
We're not marginalizing him as some Galilean peasant who, you know, wore a dress and and taught neat things sometimes. He's the king. And sin, gentlemen, we have to understand a deep view of sin. If you don't think you're a sinner in need of a savior every moment of every day, might I beg you to just get with someone. You don't have an understanding of sin. And sin and that subtle sin of self-righteousness permeates us all. And we've got to believe in the atonement, that it is, we, we deserved death. There is a penalty. That's what penal means. And it's substitutionary. The atonement was, I don't have to do a thing because Jesus did everything. And here's a big one. This is a tough one. Exclusivity, the exclusivity of salvation. Salvation is by faith. It is exclusive. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. Gender roles, it's our God-given sexuality. We've got to take a stand on this. This uh, This isn't up for grabs. We're different by design. In heaven and hell, it's the reality of eternity. There is eternal life for everyone. I like to lead in that with a conversation with unbelievers. I believe everybody has eternal life. Oh my, really? And you're a pastor? Yes, some too. As Daniel 12, 2 says, some to eternal damnation and some to everlasting life. What? You believe in hell? I do. Praise God by his grace and for his glory. I'm not going there. Somebody once said, and I think it's kind of good. I'd have to research it some more, but I think it's worth quoting. Uh, that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is all of hell you'll ever see. And if you're an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, this is just the beginning. And we have to believe we're on mission, that that discipleship is a daily duty. But that is why we're here. We're not here to be successful in our careers. We're not here just to raise our little family. We're here to influence the world. It begins with our family, but it doesn't end there. And we've got to live on mission. And since we're going through a series called Spring Training, uh, kind of back to the basics, I think of uh, no better illustration than then, not all, but then, a good coach. A good coach brings clarity to what the team's supposed to do. He invests in his players and he challenges them to live for something bigger than themselves. A good coach has character. A good coach is one you can look to and say, I want to be like that guy. A good coach has competency. He knows the game. A good coach is consistent, not perfect, but consistent. And a good coach compels us to do more and so that is, is what we are. Men, we're coaches. We're, we're here. It's far greater than that, so don't, don't whittle it down. He said, I'm a coach, and that's it. No, it's far greater than that. It's just an illustration. Leadership is the top priority of the church, and it's namely two things. To strengthen the faith of the believer, you can do this. You can make it through this. We can do this together. And it's to stand firm against the unbeliever and or those who act like it. To stand firm against them. Not to entertain it, not to embrace it, but to say, no, we're going to refute you because you're contradicting not us, but the word. Larry Crabb, here's my dream. 
I'm not 50, so I don't have big visions yet. But Larry Crabb, you know who Larry Crabb is? Dr. Larry Crabb? Love what Larry Crabb has to say here. It's long. Could you humor me a little bit? Larry Crabb has a dream. This book is a call to return to old paths. This book is now called Men of Courage. The one I have is called The Silence of Adam. Not to give up good lessons that modern Christian thinking has taught us, but to go back to a much stronger focus on finding ourselves by losing ourselves in Christ. I want to see us push aside our efforts to solve our problems, heal our pain, and recover our self-esteem. This is spoken by a counselor. I want to... I want to clear the stage for Christ to fill the spotlight. I want to fix our attention so completely on his beauty and power that every other thought is scented with his fragrance. Worshiping him, praying to him, eagerly looking for him throughout all scriptures, humbling ourselves before him in brokenness over our pride and our lukewarm devotion, waiting upon him to fill us with his spirit, serving him with single-minded purpose and a passion that consumes all others. These are the old paths to which we must return. As you read this book, do not lose sight of this one simple truth. This is good. The only way to be manly is first to be godly. That's good. Quote that. In our day, men are looking for their manhood more than they're seeking God. Too many men are making their mistake of studying masculinity and trying to practice what they learn without paying much, enough attention to their relationship with God. Do we really love Christ? Or is our passion more contrived and wavering than genuine and steady? And here's two things. Are we growing in holiness that draws others to Christ? Men, are we holy? And do we exhibit a fervency, a practice, that mer- that, or are we just merely trying to impress others with our zeal? Meaning, men, are we holy? Are we holy and are we passionate? Do other people see our passion or do they have to dig it out of us? He goes on to say, men who learn to be fascinated more with Christ than with themselves will become authentic men in our day. Men of this generation must learn to count the cost. Are we into that? Do we count the cost? The cost of following Christ, the cost is easily calculated. I love it. Everything we have, we must feel the emptiness of our souls until no cost seems too high if it brings us into contact with him. We must resist the influence of Christian culture that values self-discovery and self-fulfillment above abandoning... This is written by a counselor, just letting you know. Above abandoning ourselves to God. To put it simply, we must be more concerned with knowing Christ than finding ourselves. That's good. If all this actually happens, here's the dream. Then 30 years from now, more children might find in an older generation more examples of godly, manly men. They may be drawn to seek God with all their hearts and souls because of the powerful consistency and the non-threatened love they see in us. I have a dream. Only time will tell if it is truly from God. I think it is. My dream is really quite simple. As I look 30 years into the future, I see few groups scattered here and there across the Christian landscapes landscapes where godly character, spiritual wisdom are more honored than degrees and skill and more valued than achievement and expertise. A young couple wrote me in desperation. We've been married for six years and it's just not working. 
Do you know a good Christian therapist in the area? This is written by a counselor. Why would this couple write me, a trained, licensed, professional psychologist, rather than ask an elder in their church to meet with them? Were they drawn by my title, by my character? Why do most people with problems think immediately of getting professional help? Why don't they turn to wise Christian men? Most of us would no more consult an elder in our church for help with panic attacks or sexual struggles than we'd ask a pastor to perform a root canal. He says, why? Our culture has bought in, bought the lie that personal problems are no different in nature than physical problems. It is both kinds of problems. We think something is wrong that can only be fixed by an expert who understands and exceeds the wisdom provided in the Bible. We have entirely lost sight of the fact that every non-physical problem is at its core a moral problem with its roots and its person's relationship with God. We have therefore produced a generation of therapists and an army of counselors trained to do battle with problems than poorly, they poorly understand because they've spent more time in classrooms becoming experts than in the presence of God becoming elders. This is written by psychologists. We have lost interest in developing mentors, wise men who know how to get to the real core of things, who have the power to bring supernatural resources to bear on what's wrong. If my dream comes true, our entire culture will shift. Like an earthquake that dramatically changes the landscape, so my dream, if realized, will profoundly alter our most cherished institution. It will shatter our most deeply entrenched assumptions about how we should live our lives. In my dream, older men will father and younger men will brother. When men throughout the world, and here is his charge, and I have it up here. When men throughout the world do this, they recover their voice, they release their power, and they recapture the joy in following God's call to become authentic men. The very nature of the Christian community will train, change. That is my dream. And that is my dream. Gentlemen, reclaim your voice. We've been neutered in the silly society we live in, that we cannot stand up and say, this is how it is. Just make sure your character and your qualifications are guided by the scripture. Reclaim your voice, release your power. I don't know the statistics. I knew at one time when I was overseeing a men's ministry, but they say if a young kid comes to know the Lord Jesus, uh, very rarely does the family follow. If the mom comes to know Jesus, more often than not, some of the family will follow. If the father comes to know Jesus and comes to church and leads the way, everybody else does it because they're watching daddy. They're watching me all the time. They're watching you. They're watching you. They're watching you. And if we lead the way, and if we get excited about church, and if we say, this is where it's at, it's not out there. Peyton Manning, I love him, but he's not the Savior. If we lead the way, and if we say, I want to get excited in church, I want to lead in the nursery, I want to lead Lift's Kids Church, I want to preach from the pulpit. If you want to, I'll meet with you every day. We'll work on it. I would have no, just like John said, I have no greater joy to see my children walking in the truth. But I want to see us men stand up and say, this is my church. This is where I want to go. This is where it's at. 
That is the power we have on this earth. And then we go out and we invite people in. You ought to come to this church. There's something going on there. Those men love Jesus. They're loving their wives. They're kind. They're considerate. You know, but sometimes they're stern. I I used to think it's harsh, but really what they are is they're just fired up about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're happy. They're joyful people. That's what we should be. Not, well, man, I, I got 17,000 other things going on and I may get to do my little part in this one little thing one time just to check it off the list. That is not my dream. He goes on in that book. He, say, he says, well, I, I want to recapture the day when men take long walks together and they just break out in prayer. Seems like all our meetings are just down to about 45 minutes over a cup of coffees at Yeti's. I like his dream. That's my dream. Father.